Turn with me this morning to Psalm 24. As I mentioned last week, last week we were in Psalm 23, and as I mentioned last week, Psalm 23 is an emphasis on the imminence of Christ, and this week is an emphasis on the transcendence of God, the holiness of God, His sovereignty over creation. Psalm 24 really celebrates the sovereign creator and mighty king. It celebrates his entrance into his house on Zion, and it declares the true character of all those who may ascend the hill to worship him. And so let's read Psalm 24 together. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. In our day and age today, it seems like more than ever, people who call themselves Christians, they have embraced every pagan practice and they still think that they're Christians. Hopefully you read the article this week that Travis sent out. It was an article written by John MacArthur, but it highlighted this very problem. The data from the poll that MacArthur cited, it highlighted the state of evangelicalism. And it's a poor, poor state. One pastor said that this state of evangelicalism, this poll is really a state of depression for the pastor as he reads it, because it is so discouraging. So I'm just going to highlight a couple of those statistics that they found as they polled a large percentage of Americans. So keep in mind, these are people who profess to be evangelical, born-again believers. Only 25% of those who claim to be evangelical, born-again believers think that even the smallest sin is worthy of eternal punishment in hell. 25% think small sins are worthy of hell. So going to pick up sticks on the Sabbath in the Old Testament, that was just an overreaction on God's part. God's holy standard isn't that important anymore, apparently. Only 50% think that sex outside of marriage is a sin. So you can worship Yahweh, and you can engage in all manner of immorality with all the cults around you. That's perfectly in line with what the Bible teaches according to them. 39% of so-called evangelicals think abortion is not a sin. So essentially, it's okay. You can go up, you can worship Yahweh at the tabernacle, and then you can go down and you can sacrifice your child to Molech in the valley. And it's all the same. Not a problem at all. Here in Psalm 24, we're going to see that God's, God's holiness, that he is King of kings, he is Lord of lords, who is enthroned in heaven. And we're going to see the characteristics of those who are worthy to worship him, those who are truly his children, those who are truly believers. Because especially in our country, people are very, very confused. So this psalm today is going to give us a little bit of clarity on that matter. So just by way of introduction to the psalm, it is a psalm of David. 
Like last week, David was the quintessential shepherd, and so it was the perfect uh, person to write that psalm. But David was also the quintessential conqueror. More than any king before him, he expanded the land of Israel and the nation of Israel. Some think that this psalm was composed when David brought the ark from Shiloh and put the tabernacle up on the mount where it resided. But this doesn't give great explanation to all of the warrior and the war language. Instead, it's more likely that this song was composed and sung as the armies of Jerusalem returned from a victorious battle, carrying with them the ark, returning it to the tabernacle. So picture a celebratory procession marching back from Jerusalem, singing this song. The first two verses would be the chorus that they sang as they returned. And then as they reached the base of the hill that the tabernacle was set on, before they ascended to the hill, one voice, possibly David or the one leading the procession, would cry out, Who may ascend the hill of Yahweh? Who may stand in his holy place? And then another voice, perhaps the Levites carrying the ark, would reply, He that is of innocent hands and of pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to falsehood and does not swear deceitfully, he receives a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And then as they marched up the the hill to the, towards the tabernacle, another chorus with a refrain, this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. And then as they would reach the gates to the tabernacle, they would cry out, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then a voice, as it were, from within the gates would reply, Who is this King of glory? To which the procession would reply, Yahweh, a mighty one and a hero. Yahweh, a hero in battle. Therefore lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then the question is repeated just for a refrain of praise, Who is this King of glory? With the reply from the procession again, Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. So this psalm is a celebration of the victory of the king, but it's a celebration of, of this God as the sovereign creator, God most high, and is a description of those who are worthy to ascend into his holy place who may worship him. Those who may dwell securely with him in his holy place. This psalm, unlike Psalm 23 last week, it breaks up clearly into three different sections. So let me give you the outline this morning before we get into it. It breaks up clearly into three sections. The first point, the first section is the dominion of the sovereign creator in verses 1 and 2. The dominion of the sovereign creator. And then we just see the description for the right worshiper. In verses 3 through 6. And then the celebration of the mighty king in 7 through 10. So the dominion of the sovereign creator, the description of the right worshiper, and the celebration of the mighty king. Let me just read verses 1 and 2 again to remind you of them. The earth is the Lord's, that is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So like Psalm 23, the name of Yahweh stands at the front of this psalm in the Hebrew. It's listed there with a preposition indicating that everything following it, everything following it belongs to him. Belonging to Yahweh is the earth and all it contains. This verse is quoted by Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 10.26 regarding meat offered to idols. He says, Do not let it bother your conscience to eat meat offered to idols because 
Everything belongs to Yahweh. All of it is his. This refers to the entire earth, all of its contents, from the grandest and most beautiful stone to the grain that grows in the field, to the sheep who graze in the pasture, to the pig who wallows in the mud. It's all Yahweh's. It all belongs to him. And then the second line narrows the scope to specifically focus on those who inhabit the world. The men and women who live on the earth, they also all belong to Yahweh. This would be a declaration that the scope of Yahweh's sovereignty extended far beyond the land of Israel. Yahweh was the sovereign creator over the whole world. Unlike the false gods of the time who were localized to their respective area. Yahweh may be the God of Israel, but he is also the God of the whole world, the sovereign over the whole world. And by extension, he deserves the praise and the adoration and the worship of all the inhabitants of the world. Then verse 2 gives us the reason why he is sovereign and deserving of such. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This word for founded refers to firmly fixing something. Usually it's translated as laying a foundation. Established has the root meaning of bringing something into being with the consequence that its perpetual existence is a certainty. Established has the idea of perpetual existence. So these two words in the Hebrew, they're different kinds of verbs. The first one, founded, is a perfect, which means it, it looks at the action as a whole. It's like backing up and looking at the big picture. He wants us to see from beginning to end, God created everything. Big picture. And then this established is an imperfect, and it zooms in on the action a little bit and looks at it as continuing and ongoing. And that's built right into the the definition of that word, which has to do with perpetual existence. So God founded the earth and he perpetuates its existence. He's not only the creator, but he's the sustainer of all things and all those who dwell on the earth. It is in him that we live and move and have our being. Acts 17, 28. But David here, he says, it is founded on the seas and established on the rivers. It's important to remember that this is poetry. David isn't necessarily giving a literal, physical account of where the land was in relation to the waters at creation. That is, God didn't necessarily found the land on top of the waters in creation. Although the account of the flood does describe massive amounts of water shooting up from under the land, This is unlikely a literal description. Such a literal explanation is doubtful and even more perplexing when you add the term rivers in there. But the use of these terms, sea and rivers, David probably used for another reason. Most commentators note that this is an unusual phrase, but they say that one commentator notes that this may have been written as a polemic against Canaanite beliefs. There was a reason not to trust in Canaanite gods. And if this psalm was written after a victory, it was probably against the Canaanites. You see, in Canaanite mythology, just like Greek mythology, they would deify the forces of nature. The storms that brought rain were deified into the god Baal, who is very familiar if you are familiar with the Old Testament. They deified two other forces of nature, the sea and the rivers, into a god called Yam or Nahar, which are the two words used here. Prince Sea, which is Yam, or Judge River, which is Nahar. Those, those are the words that David uses here. So while this deity, Yam, was a powerful force to the Canaanites, To the Israelites, these forces were merely forces of nature that Yahweh had created and now controls. Alan Ross in his commentary says that in selecting these two words, 
David was proclaiming that no Canaanite deities or part of the Canaanite world could rival Yahweh's authority. And Israel's defeat of the Canaanites in battle was a demonstration of Yahweh's sovereignty over all of their land and over all the earth. The fact that Yahweh is the God of the entire earth implies he does not only deserve the worship of the Israelites, but all those nations around them as well, not some other God. Clearly, not all men do worship Yahweh, but he is worthy and due of every man's worship. So with these two verses here, David is laying the foundation for worship. He's saying the grounds of Yahweh's worship is that he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Just consider Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So David is doing something similar here, setting the foundation for worshipers. He is worthy of all worship because he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And that brings us to the second point, the description of the right worshiper. Yahweh is worthy of all worship. He is the sovereign God of the universe, but not everyone is worthy to worship him. It's in these verses that we find those who are truly worthy to worship God, truly worthy to ascend on his mountain, those who are truly his people. So who is the one who worships Yahweh? Who can ascend the hill? Is it the one who can trace his lineage back to Jacob or Abraham? Is the true worshiper the one who goes out to battle for Yahweh? Is it the one who... Who is the one who is in the fold of Yahweh? One of his sheep. That is the question. And the answer comes in verse 4, but let me read verse 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh and who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. This here is a call to self-examination. Are you worthy? Just like the, the Israelites or the Levites would answer, this is the standard. This was a call to self-examination. Are you worthy as you get to the hill where the tabernacle is? Are you worthy to ascend? Are you worthy to go up to the hill of Yahweh to worship at his holy place? Are you worthy to bear his name? The Levites were assigned as gatekeepers to the tabernacle. Their job was to make sure that those who came into the sanctuary met the standards of holiness along with their sacrifices. As people walked up, they would ask them if their sacrifice met the standard, if they met the standard of holiness to enter the court. And so the people of Israel were constantly reminded that they needed to come to worship their holy God by His holy standard. Constantly remembered or reminded by Levites at the gate, questioning them about their holiness. How about we, as a church, we stick Josh out front of the door every week to ask you if you meet the standards of holiness before you enter to gather and worship God? Station a different elder out there each week to examine you? The answer to who is worthy the Israelites would have been familiar with this. They would have been questioned regularly. We are not. We often come in and out of this place without ever questioning, without ever examining ourselves. And so that's what this is meant to do, a call to examination. The answer to who is worthy, who can ascend and worship Yahweh on his holy hill is in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 distinguishes true worshipers of God by their behavior. And verse 5 sets them apart by their blessing or what they have received. Okay, so subpoint A here is the behavior of right worshipers. What is the behavior of those who are right worshipers? 
as those who have clean hands and a pure heart. Hands and heart here are figures for actions and desires. The hands refers to that which you do and the heart refers to that which you intend or you desire to do. On the face of it, none of us measures up to this standard. Who among us is perfectly clean in their actions or perfectly pure in their desires? So on the face of it, this standard would have eliminated everyone were it not for God's divine provision in the sacrificial system. The term here for clean hands has to do with a legal notion of guiltlessness or blamelessness. It was to pronounce someone clean or innocent. It is the acquittal of guilt incurred and the punishment deserved on account of God's forgiveness. It wasn't whether or not they had ever done anything wrong, but whether or not they had dealt with their sins the way God required them by making sacrifice for sin. And even more so, the verbs that follow this and the next line indicate characterization of the person, not absolute perfection. It's not referring to someone who has never done anything wrong, but it's someone who is characterized by such a description. And we, as New Covenant believers, we don't have to we don't have to take one of our animals, one of our rams, and take it to the temple and, and cut its own throat and slaughter it for a sacrifice to pay for our sins. Christ was our sacrificial lamb who atoned for sin once and for all, but we still must confess our sins and turn to him to be right before him. This is what Jesus spoke of in John 13.10 the scene of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And Jesus said to Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Speaking of Judas Iscariot, who was not unclean. So Jesus says, you are clean. You just have need to have your feet washed. That's the everyday Sin, the accumulation of dirt as you walk, as you walk through life and you accumulate sin, you still must be cleansed of that. You still must confess that and turn from it and be cleansed of it. And yet you are, at the same time, you are still clean in God's sight as one of his children. God saves us all out of the, the filth and the muck and the mire of sin, but he is not pleased by worshipers who come to him with unrepentant sin in their hearts. We are clean, but we need to be cleansed of everyday sin. So don't come to worship God with unrepentant sin in your heart. Examine yourself regularly. Confess it to him. Repent of it. And then worship him. Jesus took this very seriously. He told one man, even if you are at the altar ready to offer your sacrifice, if you know that even your brother has something against you, leave, put your sacrifice down. You've probably stood in line for hours to do this, but put your sacrifice down and go deal with your brother first. There's a high standard to come and worship the Lord. We need to regularly examine ourselves. We don't have Levites constantly reminding us of the standard. We don't have to carry sacrifices, physical sacrifices with us as an admission of guilt, parading them in front of people as we pronounce our guilt and our sin. So we have to regularly examine ourselves to see where we are, have unrepentant sin. This self-examination is emphasized every time we take communion, but we ought to ask ourselves, even every Saturday evening in preparation for Sunday, if there is something unconfessed in our hearts that we might be able to come with our ears unplugged of the wax of sin, so to speak, from our ears that we might hear. Even more so, we ought to look into the mirror of God's word every day and as we read it, it will reflect our sin back to us and reveal what we have need of to repent of. We have to every day Confess as we sin and turn from it. But David then gives an example of someone who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
Are you a true worshiper of Yahweh? Are you a true Christian? This is how you know. This is the litmus test here in Psalm 24. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false, nor does he swear deceitfully. This phrase, lifting up one's soul to what is false, uh, is maybe better explained in the interpretation of it in Proverbs 19.18, where this same exact phrase is translated, do not set your heart on putting him to death. Speaking of a, a son who is rebellious, do not set your heart on putting him to death. That is, do not set your heart on something to act on it. The one who is truly a worshiper of God, who is truly a Christian, does not set his heart on what is false, does not set his heart on lies, or is not given to lies, but what is true. What is false here or falsehood here could refer to something that is vain or empty. The NIV actually translates this word as idle. But the primary sense here has to do with something false or untrue. And especially being in, in context to another word, deceitfully, this is the best rendition. It's just referring to something that is false, something that is a lie. But what does this look like for someone to set their heart on or be given to falsehood or lies? To put this in the context of ancient Israel and the Canaanites, even considering this psalm, if it was a victory psalm, the falsehood that many Israelites set their hearts on was that if they worshipped Baal or the other gods of the Canaanites, they would prosper them. Specifically, Baal, if they worshipped him, he would bring rain clouds and prosper their land, grow their crops. It was a lie that many, many Israelites fell into. So the falsehood, what was false, was buying into the cultural lies, particularly those that they thought would save them from their current predicament. And if you look at the cultural milieu of our day, cultural lies abound that Christians are giving their hearts over to. From critical race theory to climate change being an existential threat, there are so many things in our culture that are false that so many supposed Christians are buying into. These things are antithetical to Scripture. No amount of climate change is going to pose an existential threat. God is the only one who poses an existential threat to humanity the day he comes to judge it. So we have to guard ourselves against the lies that are predominant in our culture. I just mentioned a couple, but just, just to flesh some of this out, I wanted to target a couple of them just for application purposes. Especially in light of new coronavirus worries and the election upon us, we're just going to stick to these two things, the coronavirus and the election and so many of the lies that are perpetrated by our culture. As Christians, we have to guard, we have to make sure we are not given to cultural lies and false narratives. We have to be thinking people who test everything to the Word of God, who test every spirit, every prophet, to see if they're a false prophet. With regard to the coronavirus, don't buy the cultural narrative that the coronavirus is certainly going to kill you, or there's a high likelihood that it will. God has your days numbered. And you will not pass one moment before he wants you to. He has your days numbered. Yes, you want to be wise. You don't want to test God, go to a coronavirus party. That's nonsense. But you don't want to buy into the lie that the coronavirus is going to kill you. Certainly, if you leave your house, it's going to find you. 
a virus that has a 99 plus percentage recovery rate, if you get it, should not be feared by believers. So don't just buy into the cultural narrative and fear. Masks will not save you, just like Baal would not save Israel if they needed rain to survive. Don't trust in masks. Don't trust in hiding in your home. We have to recognize that anyone can make statistics sound really bad. Don't just buy what the, the society feeds you. You have to actually consider and be thinking people. Just one example of this is last week there was an article ran in uh, the New York Times, I believe it was, that Grace Community Church in California, who is in a legal battle against California, that there was an outbreak in the church of COVID. It was really, really bad. There's 7,000 people that attend and there was a great outbreak there. There was three people that tested positive. A terrible outbreak of 7,000 people. Three people tested positive. Now, I could take these, even these numbers and make it sound really, really bad even in our context. By this standard, we had an outbreak here back in July at our church right here. By this standard, we had an outbreak here that was 11 times worse than Grace Community Church. It was really bad. You know how many people tested positive? One. And yet, statistically speaking, those are correct numbers. Numbers can be twisted to say whatever we want them to say. So be thinking people. Don't buy everything you hear. The culture is selling lies on every corner. So I'm not saying you shouldn't ever wear a mask. What I'm saying is don't put your trust in that mask to save you. You will not get COVID and die from it unless God has decreed it. And if he has decreed it, there is nothing you can do. That is your fate. Don't test God and be stupid with your actions, but don't put your trust in a mask. So the other area I mentioned that I want to apply this to is the election. The falsehoods that we have to guard when it comes to the election and our votes. On one end of the spectrum, you have Christians who think that Donald Trump is the savior and he is going to deliver our nation. Donald Trump is not the savior. Beloved, this nation's collapse is certain. Every nation in the past has fallen and we will not be an exception. Donald Trump is not going to fix all the problems of our country if he gets reelected. He is not going to save us from the current predicament we are in. Our country is given over to depravity. And it's not going to be stopped even by the likes of someone like Donald Trump. Don't look to Donald Trump like the Israelites turned their trust in Baal to save them in times of trouble. He is no savior. Don't put your trust and your hope in him to make your life better. That's one end of the spectrum. One falsehood I see so many Christians falling into. The other end of the spectrum, maybe none of you are there, but this is where I came from about 10 years ago. The idea that God has handed this nation over to judgment and if we let it go, then they're going to see their depravity and more likely see their need for a savior. So just let it go. Let the culture be handed over to itself. Don't restrain it. But beloved, that is not loving your neighbor. God has put us here to restrain sin. God has put us here as the church to restrain our neighbors from sin. We are called to be salt to the culture around us, preserving decay and degradation into greater and greater sin. And make no mistake, the greatest way that we can do that is evangelizing and making disciples. But we can also restrain sin by voting for those who are going to legislate against it. If you hate abortion, if you hate the destruction of innocent children in the womb, 
Because God hates it. If you hate it, if you want police to be able to do the only thing that God ordained government to do and restrain the sin of the world, then you have to use every ounce of your influence to promote righteousness. And you can do that by voting for those who will legislate those things. Don't buy into the lie that I did that your vote really doesn't matter. It's one small way that we can use, that we can be salt to the culture around us to preserve it from greater and greater decay. So yes, our main mission is to evangelize and disciple, but we must use every opportunity we can to preserve the culture from further decay. Just don't let it distract you from the mission of evangelizing and discipling. So don't buy into either of these falsehoods that your vote will either save you or that your vote won't matter and has no effect. Don't think that you have no obligation because God is judging this nation, but do what you can. So the one who is a worthy worshiper of Yahweh, one who is a true Christian is not characterized by giving his heart to what is false and untrue. If you are characterized by buying into lie after lie after lie, you need to examine whether you're a believer. And if you stumble into these, if you struggle with these, buying into these at times, but you're not characterized by that, you need to repent of that and commit to be a thinking person who trusts in Yahweh alone and not in yourself or in the culture. The verse goes on to say, he does not lift his heart up to what is false, does not give his heart to what is false. And you could put that in the opposite terms. You could say, the person who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord, the person who is truly a Christian, is the one who has set his heart on truth. He gives himself to truth, not to lies. He gives himself to studying his word, not all of the things that the culture is putting out. And beyond that, it says he does not swear deceitfully. He does not make promises he has no intention of keeping. He doesn't lie. Once again, this is just a picture of the heart overflowing into the actions Someone who buys into lies is going to act on them. Propagate lies. Don't buy into lies. Don't propagate lies. Rather be a servant of the truth. Be devoted to truth and living honestly, doing what is honest. This characteristic may have been a common one used in Israel, to identify true worshipers of God. This is the same phrase that Jesus used of Nathanael. When he was walking up to Nathanael, Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the same word in Psalm 24 here. Deceitfully there is the same as deceit in John 1.47. Jesus called out one of his followers as someone in whom there was no deceit. Such is the characteristic of a person who may ascend the hill of Yahweh to his holy place and worship him. Such is the characteristic of a true believer, someone who is marked by truth and not given to lies. Are you characterized by Setting your heart on truth or on what is false? Are you characterized by setting your heart on what God says or what the culture says? And if you are regularly given over to what the culture says, you need to seriously examine yourself to see if you are truly one of His. But in the next verse... The true worshiper of God is described by the blessing that he receives. So subpoint B is the blessing of the right worshiper. David describes such a one here not by what he thinks or what he does, but by what he has been 
given. Verse 5 says, He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So such a one, a true worshiper of God, receives a blessing from him. Perhaps this is a reference to the Aaronic blessing that was basically a blessing that, that said all is well between the worshiper and Yahweh. The high priest would come out and, and declare that all was right between the worshiper and Yahweh after the, the high priestly duties. This word for blessing refers to some kind of gift, whether physical or spiritual. It's hard to imagine here in this context that referring to a physical gift. Perhaps the blessing spoken of here is being perceived by the true child of God. It speaks of the, the broad blessing that marks all children of God. Those marks of blessedness that endue every child of God. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. The blessedness that is marked by every true believer is poverty of spirit, recognizing your need for a Savior. Mournfulness over sin. Not only do you regret the consequences, but you regret your sin against a holy God. Meekness, strength under power, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Does that mark your life? Is that a blessing that you have received from God? A hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Mercy, purity in heart, peaceable, and persecution for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the God you serve. It is the one who is marked by these things. These are the blessings that mark every true child of God. A good tool for self-examination. Do you really think you are spiritually impoverished with no hope apart from God? Do you mourn your sin? Do you look to Him for salvation? Do you have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? Such a one has received this blessing from God and should count themselves worthy to approach Him, to ascend the hill, to worship Him. But they have also received righteousness. Spurgeon says, They do not ascend the hill of the Lord as givers, but as receivers. And they do not wear their own merits, but a righteousness which they have received. God first gives us good works and then he rewards us for them. Another commentator says this righteousness, this conformity to God and that which is well-pleasing to God appears here as a gift. It is the righteousness of God after which the righteous, but not the self-righteous, Man hungers and thirsts. That moral perfection which is the likeness of God restored to him. It is the being changed or transfigured into the image of the Holy One himself. So he speaks here of the sanctification process. The gifts that one receives is righteousness that is progressive and being changed into the, holy, the image of the Holy One himself. Are you marked not by moral perfection, but an upward trajectory, a progressive righteousness? There will be ups and downs in this life, but are you characterized by someone who, over time, has an upward trajectory of growth and righteousness? You are becoming more and more like Christ over time. That is the mark of the true Christian. Someone who gives himself not to lies, not to falsehood, but to the truth. And someone who is ever growing in greater and greater righteousness. Then there is verse 6. It says, such is the generation of those who seek him. This is the generation of those who seek him. 
Those who have an upward trajectory in righteousness, those who are not given to falsehood, are the generation of those who seek him, who look for him, who intently seek him with all their heart, mind, and soul. The ESV and many other translations here, there's a footnote in your your Bible. They follow a minority of manuscripts that include in this line, the God of, which is not in the best manuscripts. They do that to help explain this verse, but I think it causes us to lose the full weight of what David is trying to say here. The name of Jacob is at the end. It really says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, that is God's face, your face, even Jacob. What this grammar is doing is it's predicating Jacob of the generation, saying Jacob is a part of the generation that seeks after God. And what is amazing about this inclusion of Jacob, saying he is a part of the ones who seek after God, the generation who seek after God, who are truly his. What's amazing about this is the only characteristic that is mentioned here of a follower of God. The only qualification mentioned here to be considered worthy to ascend the hill of Yahweh is not deceitful. And Jacob is included in that. And if you think maybe this is just a coincidence, the first time that this word deceitfully is used in all of Scripture is in Genesis 27:35, when Isaac told Esau, your brother has come deceitfully and taken away your blessing. So how is it that Jacob, of all people, gets lumped in with a generation who seeks God? Well, beloved, this gives us all hope. For if deceitful and scheming Jacob can be brought into the fold of Yahweh and called one of his followers, so can you and so can I. No matter what you have done, you can cry out to him for mercy and you will find forgiveness. If you cry out to him for mercy and you put your faith in Christ's atoning death on the cross that he died to pay the penalty that you deserve, you will be saved. Even if you led a life of deception like Jacob, you can be counted with those who walk in truth. You will receive a righteousness, not your own, but a perfect righteousness of Christ as a free gift. Then with these clean clothes of Christ's righteousness, you can ascend the hill of the Lord to worship him as one of his children. If there was hope for Jacob, there's hope for you, dear friend. If you're watching today, if you are here today, do not leave thinking that you cannot be forgiven for what you have done. For it matters not what you have done, but what Christ has done for you in purchasing salvation on the cross for all who believe. None of us, none of us is better. We all stand in the same place as Jacob, falling down on the mercy of the Lord to be called one of his children. Not based on anything we have done. So there is hope for You, there is hope for me, there is hope for all of us in this mention of Jacob in this list of qualifications. So David moves on from declaring at the beginning the sovereignty of God and his holiness and his worthiness to be worshipped by all people and then he tells us the restriction of the people of God who may ascend, who are truly his people. And those people are the ones who are given to righteousness, progressive righteousness, and those who set their hearts on truth. Examine yourself today to see if that is you. Then David turns to a celebration of the holy king of glory, who is the ultimate warrior, the ultimate hero of his people. He begins this celebration by saying, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. That is, he's victorious. The heads of the gates being lifted up here. It could be poetic language, 
referring to the fact that even the, the gates rise up, inanimate objects rise up as the king comes. But it is probably a reference to the people who sit in the gates. The people atop the gates were being called to attention as the king drew near so they could open the doors that he might triumphantly come in. But this strange picture of gates lifting up their heads, again, we have something connected to the same Canaanite God mentioned at the beginning, Yom or Nahar, the God of the sea or the God of the river. There's an ancient Canaanite poem with very similar language to lifting up heads and whatnot. And in light of the fact that he's already mentioned here, the connection is not just a coincidence. So the backstory to this poem is that Yom, the god of the sea, the god of the rivers, was coming. He was sending an envoy to basically capture Baal and to defeat him, to take him and lock him up. That's the backstory to the poem. Here is the poem itself. Now the gods were sitting down to eat, the holy ones to dine, Baal attending on El. As soon as they see them, see the messengers of Yom, the envoys of Judge Nahar, the gods drop their heads down to their knees and on the thrones of their princeship. Baal rebukes them. Why, O gods, have you dropped your heads down upon your knees and your thrones upon your princeship? I see the gods are cowed with terror of the messengers of Yom at the envoys of Judge Nahar. Lift up, O gods, your heads from upon your knees, from upon the thrones of your princeship. The story goes on that Baal went out and defeated Yom, and therefore the people's heads were bowed and their hearts in dismay for nothing. And perhaps David, to add insult to injury on the Canaanites after he defeated them, he takes this line from one of their poems to pronounce Yahweh's victory over their gods. It was not Baal that was victorious, it was Yahweh. And perhaps David is calling out to the people, the man at the gates, to lift up their heads, to not be dismayed that the battle had been lost, but that the king of glory has returned in triumphant battle. He, that is Yahweh, is the mighty hero of Israel, and he is the strong victor who no one can thwart. No gods of Canaan can thwart. He overthrows all of his enemies and their false gods. One more note on this. One of the little titles of Yahweh here is in verse 10, the Lord of hosts. This whole section is uh, military language, language of God's strength and his might. But this Lord of hosts phrase is more specifically or literally Yahweh of armies. It's a title designating Yahweh as the all-powerful God, as a warrior and commander of all armies. Yahweh, this is another reference drawing us back full circle. Yahweh is sovereign over the entire universe. He's in control of all armies. He raised up the Egyptians to do his will, the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdom, the Babylonians to execute judgment on the southern kingdom. He's in control of all armies. Jesus said he had control of myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands of angels. They were waiting at his command. And so with this term, we, have, we come full circle back to the sovereignty of Yahweh over all things and declaring his certain victory no matter what happens in this life. No matter what happens in this life, Yahweh is certainly the victor. That one day, Christ will enter his courts and we will sing this. In comes the king of glory, mighty and strong, the Lord of armies, 
who slays all of his enemies alone. He doesn't even need the armies he has. So just remember this song of celebration this week. In light of the election, you may need to counsel your own heart with this song. Should, should your head be bowed at the apparent loss and the fear of defeat? Lift up your head, dear brother and sister, for the King of glory will one day enter the gates of Jerusalem to judge all of the wickedness he sees, to judge all of the wickedness that we see now. It will one day be taken care of. So no matter what happens this week, do not be cowed, do not be discouraged. For the sovereign king sits on his throne in heaven and is working all things together for his glory. One day we will all, even throughout eternity, sing this song as we enter his gates to worship him in the eternal heaven on the everlasting earth where no evil will ever show its face again because it has once and for all been put asunder by Christ. That is the day we look for. That is the day we long for. It is in light of Christ's return in judgment that you should examine, especially in light of him commanding all armies, the all-powerful God. It is in light of all this that you should examine yourself. You must pick sides. If you are not on the side of Christ when he comes to judge, he will tear you asunder. A sword will come out of his mouth that will slay everyone on the earth. You must choose sides. You must choose today. Today is the day of salvation. You must choose sides for if you are on the right side of history, according to our nation's eyes, you are on the wrong side of righteousness in Christ's eyes. Consider if you have been given to lies and have bought into what the culture is selling. Consider if you have truly mourned over your sin and have been given righteousness of Christ as it is made evident as you grow in your, His likeness. For if you fail the test, the great warrior of the universe is coming to judge you. Therefore, turn from your sin, cry out to Him for mercy, and you will find forgiveness. And if you I found yourself standing in the truth. If you rejoice in the truth and you're marked by the character of giving your heart to the truth and rejoicing in righteousness, then, beloved, you ought to rejoice. The victory is already won. No matter what happens in this life, the victory is decreed from before the foundation of the world and it is over. We have already won. Now, live in light of that, that you might not be ashamed at his coming. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are prone to wander. We are prone to give in to anything false that appeals to our flesh. We are prone to giving ourselves over to the things of the world. Lord, I pray for this church that you help us make it a priority to stand in your truth, to be students of your word, that we might cut down any lofty idea, any lofty philosophy that sounds really good, Lord, but is against your word. Help us to Study your word and be people of truth that are not taken by lies and falsehoods that are peddled every day. Help us be marked by truth, by loving our neighbors, not in the way they want to be loved, but in the way that your word has commanded us to, by confronting sin, proclaiming righteousness. Help us to use our influence wisely, and once again, I pray for those who are here that do not know you, who are watching, who do not know you, that you would convict them of their sin, that today you might regenerate their hearts, that they would see the beauty 
of you and the beauty of righteousness and turn from their sin and put their faith and their trust in you, Lord. That they would not be swept up in judgment, but they would one day rejoice with us in your kingdom, singing your praises and your victories for all eternity, Lord. May we not lose sight of your eternal kingship. May we not be dismayed at the future, but let us lift our heads. Let us counsel our own hearts. Let our hearts not be dismayed, but trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.